Good morning. Good morning. Oh, man, if you have your Bible with you, you can go ahead and go towards Acts 17. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Um, just before we get there, I'm just going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to pray for us and um, just maybe out loud today so I know we're together in this. God, we need you. God, we love you. We thank you. We're leaning into you. Um, God, we're just asking that you move um, in these moments, God, and, and not just in a, in a normal way or a way we expect, but God, in, in a miraculous way. Yeah. God, you're not really interested in the routine or doing the same thing every week. God, you are creative infinitely, so <laughs> you created everything that we've seen, and um, God, I don't think you've run out of ideas yet, so God, I'm just praying that you do something miraculous in this place, God, something above and beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. Um, so God, this morning, um, speak to me. I need it. Um, if nobody else needs you this morning, Jesus, I do. Um, God, I need you to come in uh, to this place, and, and I want to meet with you. We've wasted a lot of time if we just come and sing songs and hear somebody's opinion. God, I want something greater than that. So, God, I'm just asking that you just pour out your spirit on this place, God, that you would open blinded eyes this morning, God, that you would unstop the deaf ears and you would soften the dead hearts um, and make them beat again this morning. So, God, whatever you want to do, you do it, and uh, we just want to get out of the way. But, God, we don't want to leave this place wondering if God showed up today. Uh, we want to know. We want to know for sure. So, God, just change us in a way that affects something beyond these walls. Uh, we love you. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning. I was weak, but I'll take it. Good morning. Thank you, John. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Acts 17. And um, last week, we um, did a message. And this week, we're going to do a message. And I don't really know that those are connected enough to call it a series. So we're just going to go on. Um, and we're not going to worry about that. God doesn't need series titles, right? <laughs> Um, but this morning, uh, we're going to be in Acts 17, and uh, total opposite of last week, right? Like last week, I was like, I knew when I left Sunday what we were going to do the next Sunday, and this was not true. I actually um, prayed about it for a large quantity of time, and um, what I thought we were going to do, God was like, nah, we're not doing that, uh, which is cool. God's God, do what he want, you know? Um, but... Um, as I was sitting down to study, I was flipping through a couple things, and as I was praying, God just started downloading some information into my brain, and um, this is it. So <laughs> this morning, we're going to be in Acts 17, and we're going to kind of talk a little bit more about what we talked about last week, the idea of God's sovereignty, um, that God is sovereign. Um, last week, we talked about it in context of persecution, right, or uh, in context of a storm in our life, and this week we're going to talk about God's sovereignty kind of in a different area, but the sovereignty of God, maybe for those of us that aren't familiar with that term, I have the definition of sovereignty back there, and something that is sovereign is, no definition? Okay, um, Shadi's going to go find it. Uh, basically, it's to be completely in charge of the area that you're in charge of, right? Like, so if you think of a sovereign country or a sovereign nation, it has borders, and, and it's in charge. There we go, sovereignty. Um, supreme power or authority, it has kind of control of that area. Nobody's telling it what to do, and God is sovereign, and the sovereignty of God is just that God is the supreme power and authority, um, that, that God has supreme power 
and authority, right? Like we know that in little glimpses, Jesus says um, that he's all authority, Jesus, right? Right before he ascends back into heaven, tells us to fulfill the great commission, but God himself is in charge of everything. I love that thought, and I've been just shaken by that really the past few weeks, that there is nothing that has ever happened that God has not been in charge of. Isn't that a crazy thought? Before anything ever was created, before there was ever an anything, God already knew everything that would happen, and God was completely and totally in control of that. I know that some people hear that, and they're like, well, then how does bad things happen? And I, I, don't, I don't know that I can give you an explanation for why everything that happens, happens. But man, I know for me, I would much rather follow a God who's completely in charge than a God who's almost sort of sometimes in charge, right? Why, why would you even follow that guy, right? Uh, God is surprised often. You know, God doesn't always have it together. Why, why would you follow that guy? I would much rather be in charge, or in, in charge, yeah. <laughs> I would much rather follow a God who always knew what was happening and it was always in his plan than a God who never had his stuff together. Even if I can't understand why God does and chooses what he does, right? And we're just going to continue talking about that thought this week, and we're going to do that in Acts 17. And um, man, the book of Acts, if you've never read it, it's kind of amazing. Uh, It's a narrative. It's unlike the letters that we're often in that are two churches that tell us about our theology, what we believe, and kind of how that we should live this Christian life. It's, it's a narrative or a story, much like the Gospels, except this one has to do with the early church, what, um, what happened as the first few days right, of, of this thing that we live in today. Um, and it has to do with kind of the end half with the missionary journeys of a man named Paul, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, in 17, we see that we're inside of one of those missionary journeys, and as we're just kind of clipping through that, um, Paul has a short uh, ministry in Thessalonica. Um, he goes to the city, and he's going to minister, and I think if I read it correctly, he's there about three weeks, and he's ministering in the synagogues, and he's telling these Jewish people about the Messiah, and some people are starting to believe and 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 follow Christ, and the Jews didn't like that, so they ran him out of Thessalonica, wasn't there very long, seemed probably like a failure at the time, maybe, and then we see that um, he goes to Berea, and he does another ministry there, and they're a little bit more accepting of the gospel in this place, but then the Jews in Thessalonica heard, hey, Paul's down there causing trouble in Berea, so they come down into Berea, and they start trouble, and kind of run him out of the city there, And then he ends up in a place called Athens, a place that Paul wasn't headed, or at least he didn't know he was headed, um, kind of a stopping point uh, as he was on his way to um, the Corinthian church or Corinth. Not in the plan, not where he thought he was going, kind of a result of, I thought that was the plan, but it wasn't the plan, and I thought that was the plan, but then it wasn't the plan. Now I'm headed to what I think is the plan, but I'm stuck here, and this is kind of the moment that that Paul is in, in in the story. And so Paul gets to Athens, and he does what any good person would do the first time to a city. He, he starts kind of sightseeing in 16. It says, while Paul was waiting for them, them being Timothy and Silas in Athens, 
his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul comes to Athens and he starts kind of exploring Athens and he notices really quickly that there's a lot of idols in Athens. I've never been to Athens, by the way. I've been to like... Uh, is there Athens, Tennessee? I think I've drove through that one time. Uh, but I've never been to this Athens, right? And what happens in Athens, as I was researching it, is pretty crazy. Uh, there were like around 30,000 different gods in Athens. Isn't that crazy? There was a historian that actually made the comment that it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man in Athens, which probably, if there are 30,000 different idols in the city, little temples and big temples, that's probably pretty factual information. Um, so Paul begins to look around. He sees that they're worshiping all these different idols, all these different false gods, and, and it does something in him, something that really um, should speak to us if we know Jesus, and it's, it begins to bother him. It begins to bother him. See, as someone who knows God, right, and who knows that there's one God, not 30,000 different gods, God of the bird and God of the vine and God of the moon and all that stuff. Like, there's one God, and he created everything, and he came down here, and he died um, so that we could live. As someone who knows that, to watch a city full of people who are dying headed away, right, from God, it should trouble us. And it troubled him. I think we would look at that, and, and in our culture today, we'd be like, oh, there's something wrong with Paul because he started, like, judging people, right? Like, who is he to judge people? He didn't know him judging anybody, was he? He was looking at factual information. These people are lost, and they don't believe in Jesus. And if they don't believe in Jesus, they're going to hell. That's not judgment. That's fact. And it bothered him. It bothered him so much, actually, he decided to do something about it. Um, Wow, radical. It says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. First, he went and did the thing that he'd been doing, right? In Thessalonica, what did he do? He went to the synagogue and he tried to present the gospel to the Jews, right? They already have like the old part of the story and they have information that should lead them to believe that there is a Messiah and he's coming and he's just kind of got to plant in the information that, and he's already came, his name is Jesus and some people killed him and that was the plan of God, right? So he went to the Jews, and he starts trying to reason with the Jews in the city. They were having a great effect on the city, if you can't tell, by the 30,000 idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God. So apparently there were some believers who worshipped Big G God, the God the Father that we believe in, right? Who maybe weren't Jews. Maybe some of them were, some of them weren't. And it says, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and, he, and with those who worship God. And then it says, and also in the marketplace every day, right? With those who happen to be there. He didn't stop with, let me go present the gospel to the Jews, these religious people, did he? Let me target the religious people and try to get the religious crowd on board. That's not what he did. He actually went to them. But he also went to the marketplace, and just whoever showed up in the marketplace that day, right, he, he started sharing the gospel with them. Well, let me just get rid of something for you guys, that whole idea of friendship ministry, right? Like you got to invest in somebody for 30 years, and then at the end of 30 years, you can present the gospel if one of you didn't die first, right? 
It's not what he did. He didn't go to the city, and he's like, you know, it'd be really fun is if I just sat here forever in Athens and invested in you guys, and sometime down the road, I'll share the gospel. No, he went in the marketplace, and he realized there are some people that I'm only going to pass one time in this life, right? It's true for us as well, isn't it? All right, maybe you guys have regular cashiers at the Taco Bell, and maybe you guys only go to Taco Bell like once a year, right? And some of those people you're going to pass a lot of times, and some of those people you're going to pass one time, and he thought, I'm not going to waste an opportunity waiting around until I can you know, wait forever to form a trusting relationship with somebody, I'm going to present the gospel and let the cards lay where they lay. So he goes to the marketplace, and whoever shows up in the marketplace that day, like the merchants, the people buying things, like all those people, he started sharing the gospel with these guys. Same message. And it says in 18, then also some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers argued with him. Now, these were um, philosophers. Athens is kind of known for that. A lot of the people that we still kind of teach in school today lived in Athens. And there was two schools of philosophy. One was the Epicureans, and they were basically like what we would think of as atheists. They didn't really believe that there was a God, and they didn't believe in anything that happened in the afterlife, right? So, like, this was it, and at the end of this, we're going to die, and that's the end of it. So the main goal of Epicurean was just to experience as much pleasure as they could, like their whole existence, because they knew at the end there, there was nothing else, so that's what they thought. And the Stoics were kind of the opposite of that. A Stoic believed that everything was a god. That's a good city for them to live in, because if you got 30,000 gods, like literally probably everything you can think of is a god. They believed the rocks were gods, and the trees were gods, and the bushes were gods, and the birds were gods. Like, everything was a god. Um, but they were kind of like what we would think of as agnostics today. They, there is a god. I'm really somewhat apathetic about that. Everything's a god. You can't worship everything, so let's just do life, right? And everything that happens, happens for a reason, and you just roll with the punches because it never gets any better. That was a Stoic philosopher's philosophy. So we see that Paul begins to also reason with these guys. They call it arguing. Uh, maybe it was. I don't know what it looked like. It says that some of them began to argue with him, and some would say, in quotes, right, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? And that's actually not a um, compliment. Um, pseudo-intellectual is a word that can be translated as seed pecker. It's an image of this little bird that's hopping around in the marketplace just picking up whichever seeds he wants. They were saying that Paul is a man who picks at ideas, intelligence, and amasses enough to sound smart, but he doesn't actually know what he's talking about. This is what they were saying about this pseudo-intellectual or this seed pecker, Paul. They didn't believe what he was saying. And it says that others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities. Now, this is probably the Stoics because they actually believed in gods, right? It says because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, the Stoics were halfway interested because they thought he was bringing two new gods, Jesus and resurrection, into the story. But they didn't really care or get the message, right? But I think the amazing thing to take from this is, what, what is Paul doing in this city that he doesn't even really want to be in, right? Because some of us are maybe in places in life that we don't really want to be in right now. 
And we're like, God, why do you have me here, right? Like, I wanted to be in Thessalonica, but you didn't do that. And then I wanted to be in Berea, but you didn't do that. And now I'm in Athens, and I don't want to be here, so I'm going to pout, right? But that's not what he does. He sees the need, and then he meets the need. The, the, the need is the same for all the people, right? The Jews, they weren't worshiping 30,000 gods, right? And then they would not be Jews. They're worshiping one God, still didn't believe in Jesus. And if they were going to go be with Jesus, they needed to hear the story of Jesus. So he walks into the synagogue and he tells the gospel story because that's the most important message he's got. Not, hey, you guys are dumb and you don't have to burn things anymore and you really shouldn't kill all the animals. Like he didn't. That's not the most important message. We'll figure the worship thing out, right? But he says, you don't know Jesus, and without Jesus, you're going to be lost. I don't care what religion you are. So he shares the gospel message. But he doesn't stop there with religious people. Let me just tweak you guys. He, he goes into the city that, man, it's, it's really probably by most people's account, it's a hopeless place, right? 30,000 gods, even if I can get Jesus added on there, it's not going to do much. Like, I don't know what me, one person, can do. And maybe if uh, Silas and Timothy were here, maybe all three of us could do something. But man, it's just me. He didn't do that. I'm here. I'm here for a reason. I'm going to do the thing. And the only thing that I know to do is share the gospel. There's 30,000 gods in this place, and all those gods are leading people to hell. And I know the one God, so I'm going to do something about it. So he goes in the marketplace with these common people, right? He's not looking for rich and powerful people. He's looking for anybody that will listen. And he goes in the marketplace, and he starts sharing the gospel, the same gospel that he shared with the Jews. And then he sees these philosophers over there, and he's like, oh, they like to talk about smart stuff. And he goes over there, and he's like, well, I know you guys are atheists, and that's probably an issue, but let me tell you about Jesus. Because the atheist needs the same message as the religious people, right? We just need the same gospel. And he looks at these agnostics over here, and he's like, well, you believe in God, so we got a starting place, so let's just add on to that. Because you need the same gospel as the atheist, who needs the same gospel as the religious, who needs the same gospel as the just everybody else. And he just shares the gospel, because that's the only thing he knows to do. Yeah. And he gets insulted. Oh, heavens, right? I hope we don't get insulted. I can't believe you believe in that. Oh, I better not say nothing anymore, right? Gets insulted, doesn't stop him. People get the message wrong, right? And he's not like, oh, I don't know enough. He just keeps doing what he knows to do, and that's to share the gospel and let God decide like, right, where the cards lay. We've not been called to convert people, right? He said, go and share. Go and tell. That's like our whole calling. And then God figures out the rest of it. And Paul, who, you know, wrote most of this thing, wasn't always successful at it. Got run out of cities, got insulted. And he still did it. And so, so in 19, um, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's like a place where the leaders of the city would meet and they would talk about different things for the city, a place where people would meet and they would talk about new ideas. They took him there and they said, these are the people, may we learn about that new teaching you're speaking of. 
Tell us some more about that. You told the Jews and you told the people in the marketplace and you told these philosophers, tell us, we want to hear more about this thing. And it says in 20, for what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. It's intrigued us, right? It's not like, man, this is the greatest news we want everybody to know. It's just, okay, tell your story. It says in 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. This is like editorial notes, right? This is not a compliment to the city. (laughs) Man, they're so smart there. These lazy bums don't do anything but sit around waiting for somebody to tell them something new. That's kind of the gist of what he's saying here. But it worked out, didn't it? This is in 22, Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and he he said, men of Athens. I love this. This is like bold, right? There's an exclamation point there. Here he's surrounded by the leaders of the city. He's been talking to the Jews and just being faithful to what God's told him to do, even though he's maybe not happy about where he is. And then he's been in the marketplace and he's been being faithful and he's been getting called names. He's been being faithful. He's been being faithful on a small scale and then God puts him on the platform and he's been insulted. He's been ignored. But it didn't discourage him, did it? He stood up in the middle of the platform and he said, men of Athens, I got something for you. I see that you are extremely religious in every aspect. This is just how he starts off. I love this. What did he not start off with? Okay, you dummies, you got 30,000 gods. There's no way you are worshiping all 30,000 of these gods. And I don't understand this. He didn't start off with that, does he? Let's start off with an argument, right? Let's start off with an insult. That will surely win them to Jesus, right? Like that's, that's not a good tactic, probably, I'll be honest, it's not a good tactic, but it's one that we sometimes use. He's not really wanting to win an argument here. He's wanting to present the gospel. So he says, "Uh, okay, I've walked around your city. You you got 30,000 idols here. Man, you guys are religious people. We can work with that, right? We got something in common here. We can, we can work with that. You guys are religious. Something probably they would have taken pride in if they had the, taken the time to build 30,000 shrines. This is in 23, for I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship. I toured your city. It's a nice city. And I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. As I was walking around and looking at your 30,000 idols, and there was idols of the vine and idols of the um, chipmunk and like all that stuff, right? God of the badgers, right? I noticed that there was, there was a shrine there to an unknown God. Now, what had happened is um, this city had been dealing with disease, and they thought, okay, we got 30,000 gods. We've been serving all those gods. Maybe we forgot one. And we've ticked him off, and he's plaguing everybody, so we better just build an, another shrine. We're, instead of trying to figure out which god this is, we'll just do the unknown god, and we'll just serve it, and then the, the plague will stop, right? So Paul says, okay, you've been worshiping an unknown god. Well, in the verse under that, he says, therefore, what you worship in ignorance. Now, 
let me just say this is not an insult. Ignorance, I think I have the definition, but it's just basically not knowing, right? Lack of knowledge. It's just the God you worship without knowing. This I proclaim to you. And then he starts telling them about this God. You got a shrine to a God you don't know? Well, let me tell you about the God you don't know. The God that you don't know is the God who made the world and everything in it. Now, this would have been completely radical to a Greek. Ever read Greek creation story? It's like so messed up. I read it last night just because I didn't know. It's crazy. I'm not going to go through it, but (laughs) you would have already lost some at this. The God you don't know is what he's saying is actually the God who made the world and everything in it. He didn't pull any punches right from the beginning, did he? He didn't change the truth so people would kind of be more accepting of the truth. He just started off and he's like, you guys think it's all these gods. And I just want you to know, like, all those gods didn't make anything. There's one God who made everything. See, what we want to do, and maybe what we've even heard in the church, is just change God enough that it'll still be kind of God, but people will accept it. And that's, that's not, like, once you start changing God, he's not the God that we're talking about anymore. You're worshiping somebody else. Building your own sanctuary, right? And it says the God who made the world and everything in it, that's this unknown God. He's a God who made not only the world, but everything you see. It's not Zeus, it's not Herod, it's not any of those people. It's this unknown God. He's the one. And he says he is the Lord of heaven and earth. Or in other words, he is in charge of, he is the authority in, He's the boss of heaven and earth. It's all his. It's not like this God's over this thing and this God's over this thing and here's Poseidon doing the sea thing. No, it's like he's in charge of the whole thing. He's the Lord. He's in charge of the heaven and earth. You guys have been worshiping 30,000 and I'm just going to tell you today there's only one. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't live in shrines made by hands. You got it wrong. (laughs) Built your whole city around this, right? 30,000 shrines here. And this God that made everything, he doesn't need one of them. This is in 25. Neither is he served by human hands. He don't want your sacrifices and your offerings. Your apples, right? They're not pleasing to him. He doesn't need you to to bring in the goat. He, he He doesn't need all that. As though he needed anything. He doesn't need you to serve him. Since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. That's what he says about this God. You know, the the God that you've been just had a little shrine to, the unknown God, I want you to know the unknown God. The unknown God is the God who made everything, heaven and earth, and he's in charge of everything. And he's not like all these things you've been worshiping where you've never experienced them, you've never seen them, you just kind of know what they do and you bring them apples. He's not that guy. This God is the God who actually gives everybody everybody life. He's not a taker, he's a giver. He, He gave life. Everybody that's alive is alive because this God... He gives breath. The reason you're still breathing today is because of this God. You can't do anything in you. There's no will in you that can make yourself keep breathing if your body decides to stop. That's this God. And then he says, and all things. And let's just cut it a little short. I'm going to give you the abbreviated version today. Instead of going through the trees and the rocks and the, he made it all. 
Everything you've ever experienced, everything you've ever known, everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever owned, God first owned, right? That's this God. He doesn't need your stuff. Actually, God is giving you right now the ability to even be here. He says, from one man, he has made every nation of men to live all over the earth. Kind of hits on Genesis a little bit, right? Just in case you were confused about how all that happens in creation because you've read too many science books. From one man, he made all the men. And it doesn't matter what any other book says. Paul speaks of it, right, as in Acts as a fact, because it is a fact. There's a man, we call him Adam, and everything, every human came out of that guy. And that's how it started. <laughs> From one man, he's made every nation of men, listen to this, to live all over the earth. Everybody that's ever lived, God in his sovereign will set their birthday and their death day. I just want you to hear that again. You didn't do anything to decide what day you were coming here, did you? Anybody just wheel yourself out of the womb? Because I don't remember any of that. You didn't get a choice in that. Because God set that day in his sovereignty, in his I am fully in chargeness. He set that day. And he set another day, right? It's like the end date, the expiration date. Everybody's got one. And he knows yours. You don't know yours, but he knows yours. And you can't do anything to affect it either way. You're like, well, I can take my life. Well, yeah, you can. But did God let you do that? And the truth of it is, yes, he did. I believe in a God who is never surprised. I believe in a God who has will, and that will is effective. There's two kinds of God's will. There's permissive will. That's God allows it to happen, right? That's where the bad stuff sometimes comes in. It's also where the good stuff sometimes comes in. But it's still God's allowing, right? You're like, I don't believe that. Go read Job. Devil didn't just stroll up one day and say, hey, God, I'm going to take out Job. God said, you ever think about Job? Right? Is that not sovereignty? That's a devil that does not control God, but a God who controls that devil. You ever think about Job? He's good. Why don't you mess with him? God's words, right? Paraphrased. But that's a sovereign God. There's permissive will. God allows things to happen, right? Bad things do happen, and they happen to all sorts of people. There are no good people, so that's not an argument, but they happen to all sorts of people. And all of those things God allows. And I just want you to know, because that sounds harsh, right? And why did God allow this to happen? Why did God allow that? I don't, I don't know. But man, I'd rather follow a God that has the final say 
than the God who's surprised, even if I don't understand it. I'd rather, I'd rather follow a God that I can't understand than a God who's surprised. That's the sovereignty of God. It says that God is determined or decided. I think I even have the definition for determined up there. Having made a firm decision and being resolved not to change it. That's, that's determined. From one man he's made every nation to live all over the earth and has determined or decided and resolved not to change it. There are appointed times, all the days in between those two days and their boundaries of where they live. This is God. This is the God. This is the unknown God. It's the God that they don't know and maybe some of us don't know. This is that God. He's a God who's completely in charge. He gives us breath. He gives us life. He determines our dates, our birthday and our end date. Every day in between that, God has written... And our boundaries, God knows exactly where we will be. This is that God. Now imagine here is Paul preaching this message. And right now he's preaching to Paul, isn't he? Like I'm, I'm preaching to them, but he's also preaching to him. Because Paul's plan was not necessarily God's plan, right? I'm going to be in Thessalonica and we're going to have revival and everybody's going to come to know Jesus. And he's there for three weeks and he gets kicked out. Hardship, right? Suffering happens in those moments. And uh, Paul's probably stronger in his faith than me, but me, I would have been like, God, that's not what I thought you were going to do. God, why did you let that happen? So he settles for Berea, right? Like, okay, we're in Berea. I'm preaching the gospel. People are being saved, and everything's going good. This must be God's plan. And then the Thessalonican Jews come down, and they screw it up. God, we were doing good things in that city. God, we were doing amazing things like people were coming to know you. The church was blooming in there. And then, and then and why did you let him come down? That would have been me. I'm not saying it's him. But you've been there. You can relate. God, why would you let this happen? God, why would you do that? You've been sleeping on the job. Why are you not paying attention to me, right? And he gets in Athens in a place he doesn't even really want to be, Right? He's, he's going to Athens just away on Silas and Timothy before they go on to Corinth. And he sees this city that's just, man, it's just in a mess. And I'm just going to throw this out there. Maybe the bad stuff that happened in Thessalonica was because he was not where God had planned for him, right? And then he went to Berea and God was like... It's not it either. So I'm going to move you again with bad things. And then he ends up in Athens and God says, bingo. Bingo. This is where I want you. And he does, throughout he starts small game. He's in the synagogues and he's like, hey, I'm going to just present the gospel to them. And then he's in the marketplace and he's like, well, they need the gospel too. So I'm going to share the gospel with them. And then he goes and he's like, well, those people are over there. They want to talk. So I'm going to go talk to them. And they're arguing with him. They're calling him names and things like that. And then, and then God puts him on the platform, right? 
He's like, all right, this is the moment right here. I put you in front of the whole city. Everybody's listening. Do the thing. Now you're where I want you. It took some bad stuff to get you where I want you, but now you're where I want you. And then he gets to this part, and he's like, hey, I just want you guys to know God is the only God, this unknown God, this God you don't know. He's the one. He's made everything. Uh, He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He gives life and breath. Ah, And he's sovereign. He knew I was going to be here. He knew I was going to go through this, and he knew this is where I was going to be, right? And he's preaching to them, but he's preaching to him, and he's like, man, this is the place. Like, God is in charge of all the boundaries. He knows every day where my foot's going to go, and he knows what's going to happen in, in those moments, and that's all God's will, and maybe it's his perfect will. Maybe it's good things that day, but sometimes maybe it's its permissive will, and maybe, it's, maybe God's using bad things to shape us sometimes. But either way, like I'm standing right now where God has for me. So I'm either in the moment of, man, this is the best thing God has for me, or I'm in a moment where I'm traveling to the best thing God has for me, but I'm headed towards what God has for me. Because God is that kind of God. So to the other people in the room, right? Nobody at the Areopagus that day was there by chance. Everybody that wandered up the hill, Mars Hill is what it's called. Everybody that wandered up the hill that day, um, he's saying, God knew you were going to be here. That's still true today. Right, maybe you didn't know you're going to be here, but God knew you're going to be here. Like it's not by chance that we're wandering in the room today. God knows you're going to be where you're going to be before you ever get there. And today, God knew every person that would be in this place because He's determined your life and your boundaries. He's written your days. And just like for you today, God positioned these people in the best spot they could be to hear the gospel. God knew these people were going to walk in the Areopagus. And he's like, man, today is the day. I got Paul here and I got you here. And it's not by chance. I didn't send you yesterday because this is the day. And I'm not sending you tomorrow because this is the day. This is the day that I've made, right? This is the best positioning. This is why God determines those things. This is why God is sovereign. And this is why God allows those things to happen, right? He says, this is why God has determined the boundaries of where people live so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. This is why everybody is where they are today in life, because that is the best position you can be in to find God. Today, God has you in the best place you can be to find God. It was true for them and it's true for you. Right? You're like, well, I'm already saved. I don't, I'm already, I've passed that moment. No, 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 no. This story is not about being saved completely, is it? He says, you're worshiping an unknown God. Let me tell you about God. Some of us have grown up in the church and we're worshiping an unknown God or a barely known God. We've said a prayer and we like, maybe we're not going to hell, right? But God didn't come, he didn't send Jesus to come and die so that you simply would not go to hell. God said, I sent nature to tell my story, and you didn't listen to nature. 
So I sent prophets to tell my story, and you didn't listen to prophets. So then I just came. And I just showed up. Not so people wouldn't go to hell. We had a system for that, right? So people could know God. God wants you to know him, and he's put you today in the best place you can be to know him. And for you Christians, like maybe the times we go through these hard moments are times God is shaping us into the best place we can be to know him more. There's more, right? There's more than, oh, I got saved, and I go to church, and I try to be good. There's more to God than that. If that's the God that you know, you're worshiping the unknown God. And God wants to be known. It's important to God that we have a relationship with him, that we know him. And today, whatever you're in, he's positioned you in the place that is best for you to know him. For, for those of us that maybe don't know Jesus today, wherever God has you today is the best place you can be to know him. He brought the people to the Areopagus that day because he wanted them to hear the gospel. People would receive it, people would not receive it, but he wanted them to have the chance, right? Because everybody's set in the place that's best, the prime place for them to know God. And he said, you know what? They need to know about Jesus. They need to know that God stepped down out of heaven and he came to earth and he lived a perfect life for 33 and a half years so that he could exchange perfection for sin, right? So that he could take on our sinfulness and give us his goodness so he could trade places, so he could take our punishment, our death, and give us life. That's what Jesus came to do. And he positioned these people in that place to hear that story. And for some of us today, he positioned us in a place that we could hear that story. But can I also say, like maybe, maybe we're in the place where we can know God and that's good. And then that's Christianity today, isn't it? We're so self-consumed and self-concerned. We're like, it's about me growing and I just want to grow spiritually and I just want to have a good relationship with God and I just want to read the whole Bible this year. And we're like so concerned about us and we forget that there's people out there that are dying. There's people out there that we're surrounded by every single day that are dying and going to hell apart from Jesus. And Paul loved the city enough to do something about it. Maybe you're like, I hate Knoxville. Great. Love the people while you're here. And then if you go somewhere else, love those people when you get there. Whether you hate it or not. I hate my job. Great. Whine about it when you get home, but you're there for a reason. Because here's the reality today. Even more than God has put me in a place where I can know him the most. And God has put the people in this place this morning in a place where they can hear the gospel the most. God has put the people in your life in the best position they can be at to have the best shot at the gospel. The people at your house, that's, they've been placed there by God in God's sovereignty. They're not your family because something just miraculously happened. God put that soul in your family because that's the best place they can be to know God. Why? Because I got a Bible verse hanging in the house? No, because you got the gospel living in your story and they need it the people at your workplace right i hate my job who cares the people at your workplace they're positioned there because that's the best place they can be to know god well everybody's saved what's well, great where are they at with jesus why don't you find out The people at your school, God's positioned them in the best place they can be to know God. And then beyond that, the people at the marketplace that you may only pass one time. Today might be their shot. 
Man, it blows my mind that we have a God that is so meticulously detailed, that loves on such a scale, that he built your whole life and my whole life and their whole life in a way that would give them the best shot at knowing him. God wove all the pieces together, right? And for those of us that know him, all we have to do is see the need and meet the need. It's crazy, and it's easy, right? I don't, I don't know all the theology. Great, nobody is saved by theology. But they need to know the law so that, no, they don't. They need to know that God changed you, and because God changed you, you believe God can change them, and you know the way, and his name is Jesus. It's like the gospel, Right? You want to read what he reads as the gospel? This is what he speaks as the gospel. He says, For in him we live and move and exist. And some of your own poets have said, You can relate to this. For we have also, for we are also his offspring. Some of the poets that are Greek said that we're God's offspring. Being God's offspring, then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art. God's not in a shrine. Therefore, Having overlooked the time of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has set a day, right, because God's in charge, he set a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this for everyone by raising him from the dead. That's like the whole gospel story that he tells. And it says in 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we will hear you about this again. Man, I want that. So Paul went out from their presence. However, some men joined him and believed. Did he explain the Trinity in that, that I didn't get somewhere? Facts. We're lost without Jesus. That's why God sent Jesus. Jesus died. He rose again. We can live gospel some men believed some men didn't Paul was faithful where he was planted Paul was faithful where he was planted I think that's like the thing right I think for some of us we we don't like where we're planted so we so we want to fuss about where we're planted and maybe we just need to come around the fact that there's no way in the world you could not be where God wants you to be right now but I'm living in sin. That's called the permissive will of God. It's not, the, it's not the best thing God has for you. Maybe hopefully, prayerfully, God will use that to call you out into repentance. I'm living away from God. It's called permissive will. Right? God doesn't want you to be away from him. He's allowing you to exist away from him so that you might have the opportunity to come back to him. It's permissive will. Perfect will, right, is you're going to come to know me. The world's going to stop one day. It started one day. Those things that, that's the only way it's going to happen, right? Permissive will is um, Jesus came and died to give you a choice. God's perfect will for you and God's heart of hearts, right, is that you would know him. But he's still letting you make that choice. He knows what choice you're going to make. 
You know why? Because God's sovereign. He knows if you're going to say yes or you're going to say no, but he still extends mercy and grace and goodness and lets you live out your life, right? Even if you're going to reject him your whole life, let you live out your life. Even if you're going to do horrible things, let you live out your life because that's called grace. Why didn't God wipe Hitler off the face of the earth? Because God is a gracious God. Because even a man that would, that would try to kill God's people, right, in horrible ways, he gets a shot at heaven. You know why? Because God is a gracious God. I don't, I don't know, right? I, I'm not God. I can't understand that. But what I know is that, man, that's the kind of God I want to be behind. It's a God that says, man, you could be the most pitiful excuse for a human being ever, but I sent my son for you. And if you'll step into the mercy and grace of the Son, I'll save you no matter who you are and what you've done. I want to follow a God that that even if it takes a storm to get me somewhere, is positioning me through maybe pain and maybe suffering and maybe sorrow and maybe all these other things that we just hate about our life. Maybe God's using all those things to position us into the place where we might know Him more. I want to follow that God, not a God that says, I don't really care. You know, I don't care if you know me. I don't care if you follow me, right? I don't, I don't want to be an agnostic. I don't, I don't want to, I'll just follow whatever feels good. I want to follow a God who says, I have everything in my hand. And it may feel shaky for you, but this is not a shaky hand. It may feel like it's crumbling around you, but man, I'm, I'm holding it together. It's not going anywhere. I want to follow that God. A God who maybe I don't always understand, but I can always rest in the fact that, man, it's his strong hand that carries me through the day. I want to follow that God. I want to follow a God that loves me enough to position me to the best place I can be to know him. I want to follow that God, even if I don't get it. So I want you to know today that that's, that's the God we're talking about. A God who thinks on a scale and knows on a scale that we'll never know. Who understands in a way that we'll never understand. A God who's written every day of your life. Who's never surprised by a decision you make. Or news you hear. That's that God. A God who, yes, uses suffering, but also was not exempt from suffering. A God who sent um, Jesus, actually, to suffer. You know that was the perfect will of God, that Jesus died on that cross in that way? Isn't that crazy? God mapped out every slash on his back before the creation of the universe. He pinpointed every thorn that would pierce his brow before he ever spoke anything into existence. That's that God. A God who said, I I think that I want him to put a nail here and here and here before we ever sinned. Why? Because God sometimes uses suffering to accomplish good, right? All of hell probably thought at the crucifixion that, man, they had won. And God said, just wait a couple days. This is going to blow your mind. 